All right, let me um, open us with prayer and we'll go from there. Lord, I just pray your blessing on our time. And I pray that um, the word of God would enrich our hearts, grow us and mature us in the true knowledge of Jesus Christ so that our minds can be um, equipped to take every thought captive, to understand how to walk in the newness of life that we have. Your word speaks so consistent, consistently about it. And the real challenge is steadying ourselves in that belief so that we can walk in it. So Lord, we need your help. We pray your blessing as this word from Peter builds us up this morning that you would um, mature us and grow us through that knowledge. And so we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We have been going through the gospel in many different areas. And uh, this morning we're going to go through Peter, First Peter. Because chapter 1 of 1 Peter is it's a great little flow. Again, it's, it's kind of interesting in that it, it, like so many other books, 1 Peter will just kind of throw out a casual mention of the death of Christ as, say, 2 Peter does. Peter doesn't focus so much on the, um, the death as much as it does the, the new life of Christ. So some books are more balanced, where they speak to both extensively, and some are not so much balanced as far as their opening explanation of the gospel is concerned. And so we're going to look at that. But to start, I want you to look at John, first, or John chapter 1, not 1 John, but John. In John chapter 1... The opening to this letter is great because if you read the whole gospel of John, I mean, the whole gospel is phenomenal as far as what it's communicating about being a child of God, a son of God, uh, a child of light. It's co- he's constantly referring to these things. But particularly uh, in verses um, 9 through 13, we're going to look at... Um, what he has to say. So there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He says, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Of course, talking about Israel. Then he says this, but as many as received him. To them he gave the authority. Now, I don't know what your Bibles say, but the actual Greek word, exousian, or exousia, depending on what form it takes at the time, is the word authority. It's not like he gave you the right to become the children of God, like, you know, you have the right to do it. No, he gave you the authority to do it. The authority. To become a God's child. Even those who believe in his name. You say, okay, well how does one become God's child? He tells you that in the next part of the verse. 
who were born not of blood. That is to say that you're not God's child because you're born through a lineage, right? Through Israel, through Jacob, through Abraham. It says, nor uh, who are not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That is to say, if you are a child of God, if you have the authority to become a child of God, it's given to you by Jesus Christ. It's the same Greek word used in Matthew 28, where he says, all authority has been given to me under heaven. Right? Verse 18. Remember that? He's, you know, people call it the commission, but reality is he's telling the disciples, he's turning them into apostles, and he says, all authority has been given to me under heaven. And so this authority, this, you know, exousian, this authority that he has, he says, I've given to you. If you believe in respects to me. When you believe in someone or in the name of someone, you're believing what they believe. You're believing what they accomplished. So that means you're seeking to unite yourself with a person's mindset, right? He's a living person. It's not the Constitution. Some people treat Jesus, you know, God like he's the Constitution. The Constitution is a piece of paper. It's not represented by a man, a living man, right? Well, the Word of God is represented by the living God. So he's alive. Jesus is alive. God is alive. So that means we're relating not to a piece of paper. We're relating to a person. So he says, I've given people who believe in respect to me and what I believe. I've given those people the authority to become God's children. The problem is, is you cannot will it to happen. Right? Can you just will yourself to be magically newly born? Could you will yourself, you just think hard enough that your spirit is removed and replaced by a new creation? Can you will that to happen? You can't will that to happen. God has to do it to you, right? To, to become a child of God, it's not of blood. It's not of a, the flesh. It's not of a man. You say, what's the difference? Nothing. <laughs> In other words, he's just making sure he's covering his bases. So somebody goes, well, it's uh, out of the flesh, uh, not a man. Just people come up with the nonsense, right? So he covers the bases. He goes, but of God. In other words, you can become a child of God if you're born specifically of God. And that's what we've talked about in the in the last sessions, our discussions, our shitty chat chats. Look at John 3. John 3. Jesus said it again, right? To talking to Nicodemus. If you, verses 3 through 5. Jesus answered and said, let me tell you the truth, Nicodemus, the absolute truth. I say to you, unless one is born from above, the word again there is from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, of course, says, how can, these, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time in his mother's room, blah, blah, blah. He's just chitter-chatting. He's, he's 
not being that respectful. But Jesus answers him again. Let me say the absolute truth. I say to you, unless one is born of water, that's to say born of your mom, because you come through water, the water breaks, the baby pops out. He's answering Nicodemus in his like kind. Nicodemus says, you can't go back in your mother's womb and be born again, can you? You have to be born of water, yes, Nicodemus, but you have to be born of the Spirit and the Spirit, or he cannot enter the kingdom of, of God, right? You can't see it, nor can you enter it, unless you're born from above. What does it mean to be born from above? Well, the Holy Spirit newly creates you. God's Spirit creates you new. You see that? So you cannot see or enter heaven. These are called bottom line truths, right? These are not arguable. These are not interpretations. These are not somebody's, somebody's opinion. Jesus said you can't see the kingdom unless you're born from above. You can't enter the kingdom unless you're born from the Spirit. So... That's a bottom line truth. So it doesn't matter about religion at this point. It doesn't matter about what you call yourself. The bottom line, nobody from any place on earth, from any religion on the earth, walks into heaven or sees heaven unless they are born from above, thus born of the Spirit, as John 1 says, they're born of God. Does that make sense? It's a bottom line truth. Would you all agree? Right? You don't see or enter heaven unless you're born from above. Yeah. Right? Makes sense? So that bottom line truth is important to recognize. This is what Peter jumps right into right at the beginning of 1 Peter. I wish we had more from Peter because... He wrote, he wrote well. But he wrote short. He's got two small books. And I know he had more. I know he would have had a lot more to say from the Holy Spirit if he, if he would have written it down. So I want to look at this first chapter. We're going to buzz through and just follow his flow of thought. And you've got to ask yourself, do I believe this to be true? Because you read the Word of God to believe it. You don't read it to know it. You don't read it to understand it. You read it to believe it. And if you read it to believe it, you will know it. You will understand it. If you read it to believe it, you will have a relationship with God and His Son because you're believing these people. That's what it says when He says, in His name or in Him. You're believing in respect to what He believes. So when we're reading this, we're reading in respect to what Jesus believes or in respect to what he did. So in his name or in respect to him. That's what in means when it says in someone. So he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Nice simple opening. So he's a sent one of Jesus Christ. There are only 12 of them. There's only 12 of them we know of Jesus Christ because there's only 12 names of the apostles written over the gates of heaven as the book of Revelation talks about. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. He says they're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. And then it says, in, this, in the work of God setting your spirit apart in the setting apart of the Spirit. Now, the reason why I 
Peter drives me crazy is because the translation is so utterly bad. Um, literally, it just says something like this. It says, he chose us according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. He chose us in setting apart the Spirit. In other words, in separation of spirit. That's how he chose us. He chose us by setting our spirits apart. This is not talking about the Holy Spirit. This is talking about your spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's not in that text right there. It literally just says, he chose you in respect to this, in setting the spirit, your spirit, apart. In the separation of spirit. That's how he chose you. In other words, if I were to say, I'm going to choose... Uh, if I have 10 people, I'm picking a basketball team, right? And I, you know, we did this as kids. You're picking for volleyball, basketball, yard football, whatever, and you're picking teams. Well, when you pick somebody, you set them apart, right? So if there's two people picking people, you pick this one and you say, okay, my team stands beside me and their team stands beside them, Right? So when he says, I chose you in separation of spirit, what he's saying is, I separated you out for me. Does that make sense? I wish the translation made it that simple for you to see, but it doesn't. So he says, he chose you in separation of spirit. So what did he do? He separated your spirit. You understand? He separated your spirit. In separation of spirit. And it says, in separation of spirit, it says, unto or into the hearing and the sprinkling. It doesn't say to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. It says literally, un, into the hearing and the sprinkling of Jesus Christ. In other words, the hupo akuo often translated obedience, but it's not, it's not really what it means. Hupo is under, and akuo means to hear. So, when you hear the word hupo akuo, a Greek person says they're going to put themselves under what they heard. Right? If you go hupo, which means under, and hear, akuo, acoustic, we get our word acoustic from, means to hear, then you're thinking in terms of, I'm putting myself under what I heard. And this is the case here. It says, we are those who heard him. And after hearing him, have been sprinkled in his blood. And why, the reason why, why he uses the term sprinkled is because that goes back to the, the inauguration of the old covenant as a symbol. You can read more about that in Hebrews chapter 9 where he kind of gives you the breakdown but basically, the ideal was, in the Old Testament, was that when Moses inaugurated the Old Covenant, he killed the bull and did all this stuff. He got the blood and he put hyssop and a perfume and all this stuff together with water into this bowl. And his job, most people always see the tabernacle right after the people were, were, uh, were brought together and the Old Covenant started. And you always see this pretty tabernacle, right? If you look up Old Testament tabernacle online, you're, you're going to see this pretty white linen, you know, uh, tabernacle, I mean the tent, uh, tent walls. 
You're going you're gonna to see uh, everything looks clean and shiny, lovely. But in reality, in order to start the old covenant, Moses had to take that big pot of blood with the perfume and the hyssop and the water, and he had to dip this sort of whip thing into it. And he had, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands or millions of people of Jews, so this is a lot of work, right? And he has to make sure that every single person in Israel and their tents are covered by splattered with blood. So they're there making, you got the, the blood brew people back there making the next brew of hyssop and whatnot. And he's got this whip. So he would walk down the aisles of Israel the first day. He'd take that whip and he would put it into the hyssop and he would snap it. Pop! And we'd go, and blood would go all over the people. It would sprinkle out of the air. So Moses, he's walking around Israel, pop, dips it in the blood, pop, dips it in the blood, pop. And he's, he's covering everybody. So everybody's nice Sunday clothes are all covered in blood. All their hair, their face, their clothing, their tents, their shoes, their feet, everything's covered in blood. But it smells nice. <laughs> because God made a perfume with it to make it smell nice. A sweet aroma, because the blood of Jesus Christ was a sweet aroma to the Father, but it covered the people, right? But it didn't only cover the people. If you read the whole story, of which what Hebrews gives you a summary of, he had to cover everything, the temple, or the, at that time, the tabernacle. He had to cover the whole tabernacle with blood. So you have that pretty white thing and all the gold instruments and all the silver and everything's laid out in the altar, the Holy of Holies, and everything's there. And then Moses has to go and take this brand new baby that he's built. It's all shiny and lovely and dip that sucker into it, that whip, and just start snapping it. And he just covers the whole tabernacle with blood. So now the whole tabernacle's covered in blood. And all that was pointing to, as Hebrews chapter nine is talking about, is the fact that Jesus Christ's blood was going to have to be spilled for us. And in fact, most people don't know this, but Hebrews, of course, lays it out quite simply. His blood had to be sprinkled on the tabernacle in heaven. In fact, I'll read that to you. Just for posterity's sake. <laughs> Chapter 9, verse 11. Hebrews 9, 11. It says, But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. When Jesus died, he had to present his body there. That's where the physical body of Jesus had to be presented. That's where the blood of Jesus had to be presented in heaven, where the tabernacle was in heaven. And that's why he says, verse 12, and not through the blood of goats and calves, as we just described. He goes, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained an eternal payment. Redemption just means payment, right? It just means payment. So don't, 
it really bugs me when they leave King James words in there that don't make any sense to anybody today. He paid for you. He paid for the price of your salvation, right? So an eternal payment. Eternal payment means there never needs to be another one. Whereas the bulls and the goats are constantly giving these payments that actually don't pay for anything is what this next, the, the whole chapter of nine and 10 of Hebrews talks about. Verse 24, if we skip down, he just kind of repeats himself. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. That's where the body of Jesus was presented. That's where the blood of Jesus needed to be spilled. In the same way that on earth, the earthly tabernacle or the holy place had to be covered in blood, most people don't realize that when Jesus died, at some point, that body had to be taken up into heaven, laid on an altar in heaven, and the blood of Jesus had to be blown all of the walls of the tabernacle in heaven. Isn't that something? The blood of Jesus didn't just get represented here, it had to be represented there because that's the place where God's integrity looked like it was in question. Right? And why was God's integrity in question before Satan and the angels? Because he, um, he was supposed to give the That's right. God so loved the world. And if you're God and you're righteous, you can't love the world and not kill the world, right? If it's sinful, right? If you sin, you die. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So if you sin, you're supposed to die. Adam didn't die. God didn't kill him. And consequently, it made God look like he did something or at least that he hadn't done what was right. Not necessarily he had done what was wrong, but he hadn't done what was right. That's why Satan was the accuser of the brethren. That's why Satan had the, the right to accuse us. That's why he does not have the power, authority, or right to accuse us anymore. Right? Because the blood of Jesus Christ now has been sprinkled on us. Right? It's been sprinkled on us. You didn't see it. But from a technical standpoint, God applied the blood of Christ to you. In the same way that the first covenant was inaugurated with blood, the second covenant was inaugurated with blood. And this time, rather than the blood of bulls and goats, it was inaugurated first with the blood in heaven. Now going back to Peter. That's why he uses this term sprinkled Peter and Paul off and get flowery. And they start referring back to stuff that Gentiles don't know what they're talking about because Peter was the apostle to the Jews or to the Israelites in a way. And so he uses very Hebraic language and Hebraic historical concepts. He uses the word soul a lot or conscience, which is very Hebraic as opposed to spirit and mind, which is very Gentile. Paul uses. So when we read Peter, you, you're going to hear different terms often. But he does start right out and say, 
that you were chosen by God setting your spirit apart. Right? So we know that happened. That's how he makes us new, which is what he's going to talk about next. He says he, he, he set our spirits apart unto this or to this, hearing him and being cleansed by him. Right? Again, I wish your translations reflected that. Unfortunately, they don't. At least most of them don't. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. And he's obviously wishing them, wishing them blessing, as we all should. He said, blessed one, or blessed is, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be, there it is, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This goes back to what Jesus said. This goes back to John 1. Of course, all the scriptures is replete with, if anyone is in Christ, he is in what? New creation. creation. Right? You're created, you know, put on a new man, which in the likeness of God has been created, created in true holiness and true righteousness. Right. If anyone is, in, uh, what is he saying? Uh, uh, we are God's workmanship, created. created in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you are a child of God, it's because you were created new, and you didn't even know it took place. You might have known intellectually, but did you see it or feel it? No. Jesus says it's like the wind. And he's talking to Nicodemus. He says, don't be marveling at these things, Nicodemus. He says, it's like when the wind blows and you don't see where it comes from or where it's going. Same it is with the Spirit. And what he says is, you can look out the window and you can see movement in the trees. You see this big, ominous thing, right? And it's being pushed around by invisible forces. It's being moved. Same thing happens with the Spirit. Spirit is invisible. You don't see it. It comes in, tears out your old spirit. The one your mother and father birth dies with him. And then he places a new spirit within you. And the whole thing was like the wind pushing a tree. You never saw the spirit do any of it. You just see the fact that the person is now new. They have peace. They have joy. They have hope. They have a heart after God. They have love for Jesus Christ. They have the law written on their heart, the love of God poured out in their heart. They have newness of life. Right? And if they don't have newness of life, if you don't see the life in them, that's how you know they're not his. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Again, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why? Verse four, what does it say? To obtain an inheritance. What have we said all along? God is excited to give you a lot of good things, right? He's excited to give you a lot of good things. Jesus said what? I go away and prepare a place for you, right? Ephesians chapter two, verse seven, right? He can't wait to show you the surpassing greatness 
of his, huh? Of his glory. Of his glory. Right? Of his inheritance. We are blessed. We're his children. And he wants to show us this thing. All this wonder that he's made. We're, we're designed, our whole objective is to obtain an inheritance. An undefiled, uh, imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Heaven is not a place where you float around. There's, it's a place where you walk, right? Where you see things and you touch things and you smell things and you eat things and you have good conversations and you enjoy yourself. There are homes there, right? There are places to sit, places to do whatever you want to do. Whatever a home means to Jesus in heaven is what it means. Like, do we rest there? I don't know. I guess if you want to. But take a nap. Wake up a hundred years later. Oh, that was a long one. Joke. <laughs> beat my record. Huh? Beat my record. Beat my record. <laughs> yeah, beat my record. <laughs> Kung Fu Panda. Beat my, beat my record. He says... Who are protected, and we are protected, by the power of God, through belief, through faith, which is just the same word as belief, for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. What is that referring to? I thought we were saved. If we're waiting for salvation, uh, how, do, how does that work out? How does that work out? Flesh. It's the resurrection of the body. We're waiting for the resurrection of the body because we're already spiritually, he's already made the distinction. Our spirit has been set apart, right? Unto eternal life and then born from God. But our flesh is very much just still the same old baggage it was when we got saved. Nothing's changed. Nothing's gotten any better. It keeps getting older. It's absurd to think that through your behavior, you somehow go from bad to better in the flesh if that were true, you'd go younger and younger the more good works you did. I don't see anybody getting younger. Huh? What? What a concept. Yes. We have a great world if that was true. I don't know. Some people would be like, ah, forget it. I'm going. <laughs> yeah, rebel style. Going out in blaze of glory. <laughs> yeah. So, he says this. In this you greatly rejoice. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, notice this. What is a trial for? The proof of your belief. Prove it, right? The proof. In other words, why does God bring a test into someone's life? So they can prove to themselves that they are his. So you want to know if you're his? Do well in the trial. <laughs> you know, everybody can love those who love them. Jesus said it's the loving your enemy that's the difficult part, right? That's where the love of God has to come in. Anybody can, anybody can be rejoice in God when things are good. 
But can you rejoice in God when things are bad? Right? So a trial brings about the context that proves if your belief is real. And that faith is, when you find out that it's real, more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. It may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And it will, because our bodies will be made new. There will be a great, great wedding, if you will, for the lack of a better term, in that time. Fantastic. This is just simple truth, right? Just simple stuff. It's this wonderful, amazing thing happened where God had to kill a human being to save humanity. And this is the conversation, right? I feel like every book should be like Romans or Hebrews. This sort of Lord of the Rings style exposition of truth. You know, this long, drawn out, repetitive um, presentation of truth because it's so magnificent. It should be some theatrical music going on in the background and stuff like that. And Peter just says, you know, this wonderful uh, thing happened to you and uh, God chose you, he set you apart and, and through so that you could hear him and you could be sprinkled in the blood and he caused you to be born again to a living hope so as to receive this wonderful inheritance to be protected by the power of God. How wonderful, isn't that great? Like, I want to say, this is like, this tremendous amount of truth that is astonishing and is life-changing in how you view people, right? Because if somebody's not born again, what does 1 John 3 say? They're a child of what? The devil, the devil yeah. right? Does that mean the devil birthed them? No. It means that their soul has the same fallen predisposition as Satan's. So no matter how civil they are or how nice they are as a human, if they're fallen, they have the same basic predisposition as Satan himself. Which means that they basically could progress in their evil to that level, which is what Romans 1 talks about. They spiral down into depravity, growing darker and darker, so forth and so on. And if someone is a child of God, even though they're immature and they don't look like they present themselves very well, their spirit is shining and glorious and set apart by God. And they have all the potential in the world. They have all the predisposition of God's own holiness and righteousness dwelling within them. And they have all the potential to walk out the most godly life as if Jesus himself were on the earth. And so you're, this presuppositional change is profound just in how you view the people standing in front of you, how your actions of love, how your interactions work with them. He says in verse eight, and though you have not seen him, you love him. This is a big one. He says, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, it's one thing to say you love Jesus Christ. It's another thing to actually love him, right? To have the instinctive love is important. 
to where you know you have love for him in your heart. But then you want to test that out. If you want to test that out, just ask yourself in moments where you have to make decisions, if your love is now going to be implemented into an action that's going to be consistent with his belief on your life. Right? However that works itself out at the time. Love isn't just a feeling. Love in 1 Corinthians 13 are 15 verbs. Love is being patient. Love is being kind. Love is not rejoicing in unrighteousness, right? All those various verbs mentioned in the text. Though I've not seen him, I love him. That's very strange because I don't really love anybody that I haven't seen. I don't have love for people like that. I choose to love people, but you just don't have love for people. But, but Jesus Christ, I actually love him. Isn't that weird? You've never met him. You don't know him. Just this person in a book. And yet people, they give their lives to him. That's a weird thing. It's strange, right? It's strange. It's one thing to have a religion where you haven't met the God and you have people blow themselves up some crazy religions, right? But it doesn't take love for that God to blow yourself up. That, you can do that because you, you're hoping to get you know, some benefit in the eternal life. It's, it's different to have an actual love for a person called Jesus Christ that you it manifests itself from within you and you say, where does this come from? Why is it that it holds me steady? That it has to be the love of Jesus that keeps me coming back to relating to him, right? Because what else would motivate me? I'm sacrificing, I'm giving up my life, I'm giving up my time, I'm giving up in my service, my spiritual gifts. Well, all these things people give and give and give in service and they joyfully share this great message that he did What brings that? What motivates that? Right? What motivates that? It's love. He gave it to us. He poured out, as 1 John 3 says, he poured his love out into our hearts. So that's where it comes from. Being born from above means you have his love in you and therefore you love him. You love him. If you don't love him in that way, it might be a good indication that you're not his. Or it definitely is an indication you're not his. Anybody have a question on that? He says this, verse nine, to obtain or attaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your what? Your souls. Now here's where he uses the word soul as opposed to spirit. He uses the word spirit up here in verse two. He uses the word soul here in verse nine. Question on that. Is that how he would have written it, or is that just the way it's been translated? They just throw in spirit, soul. No, that's what he wrote. He did write spirit at one point, soul? Yeah. Suke. Yeah, that's suke, which is soul, and pneuma, which is spirit up top. The base words, anyway. Yeah, because in the Hebrew mindset, soul, going back to nefesh, you know, in the Old Testament, was more... Um, considered the man 
where spirit was referred more to God a lot, ruah, and uh, the Hebrew mindset, the soul was more the the man, and so he's right to the Hebrews, so he uses more Hebraic concepts, whereas Paul uses right to the, the Greeks, he uses more Greek concepts, which would be pneuma or you know uh, the word spirit, and less of the word soul. But it's the same thing. When people say, and, and here's one of those things, people often say to me, well, where do they get this concept of progressive sanctification from? Right? Where do you get this concept where, you know, if I pray and I study and I read, that, you know, I go from, from being bad to better? Because that's, that's the belief in most, most, most of Christianity. And it's a lie, a profound lie. It's from a Catholic background. And basically where they... They get it from because what happened was when the, when the so-called, you know, the Reformation happened, they, they, they attacked the death of Jesus and they wanted to get that right. Like, let's get the death of Jesus correct. And so they focused in on the death of Jesus. And, you know, let's battle, battle, battle about whether his death pays for our sins and whether you need to go through these things and so forth and so on. So they kind of, for the, for I would say for the most part, for, but somewhat, they got that cor- corrected. Somewhat. Somewhat. And I say somewhat because it's just barely in some circles. They got an understanding that the, the blood of Jesus pays for sins once for all. Like They actually re- read it and believed it. And then eventually spent the next 400 years perverting that and making it a religion again. But nonetheless, they tried. right? But because they didn't understand the flesh and the brain as opposed to the spirit and the mind. What would happen was these old writers that people worship, the Calvins and the Bluthers and the whatever of the world, the Zwinglies, all these guys that people worship and create religions off of, they started trying to figure out if I'm saved and if I'm new, how is it that I still have sin, right? And so they were trying to figure it out. And then they would read, well, at first they were like, well, okay, well, God pays for the sin, and, uh, but you're, you're still sinful. You're still a sinner. You hear that all the time in Christian. You're a sinner saved by grace. You hear that? It's a lie. You were a sinner saved by grace. Now you're a saint sustained by grace. Nobody saved is a sinner anymore. Their flesh is sinful, but their spirit is no longer who they were. It is dead and made new. They were born of God. And if you're born of God, you're not sinful. Your spirit doesn't have it. That's not the source. Of course, if you could just take a cursory reading of Romans chapter seven, you figure that out really quick, right? Even something as simple as Romans 8.10. Though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. righteousness. There's a separation. The spirit's who you are. It's alive because of righteousness. In other words, the spirit is righteous. Therefore, it is alive to God. The body is dead because it's still in a state of sin as opposed to righteousness. It is wrong. 
It is in the wrong. The body is in the wrong. Everybody here's body is utterly sinful and there's nothing you can do to change it. Nothing. Nothing. And you will never, ever, ever make it better. You can only make it behave better. That's why it says be, be holy in all your behavior. Right there in the text as we're going to read it. Isn't he say be holy in your spirit? Your spirit is holy. It says be holy in your behavior because your spirit is holy. That's what we're about to read. In fact, look over. We'll skip down. Verse 14 says, as those who hear, again, obedient is listening children, children who hear, do not be conformed to the former desires which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. In other words, God has created you holy. That's why it says to the holy ones at Ephesus, to the holy ones at Colossae, to the holy ones at Thessalonica. He doesn't write to the sinners. He writes to the holy ones. You, he is holy. You're born of him in holiness. Therefore, you're holy. You're created that way in spirit. Do you think people get it confused the way it says you shall be holy? Or I oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because the King James concept of things looks at, makes it look like um, something you're supposed to do as opposed to a statement of fact. It's like it, it's God's proclamation. In the, in, yeah, I mean, it just says you will be holy for I am holy. Like you will be in a state of holiness because I am in a state of holiness. Yeah. Right? A good illustration of that is that Israel, regardless of whether they wanted to be holy or not, were holy. What made them holy? The covenant the old covenant they were under in the sprinkling of the blood. They were under a covenant that was a temporal holiness. That is to say, not a holiness of an eternal life, but, but a temporal holiness of a blood of bulls and goats. And God held them to that. Deuteronomy 28, if you do what's right, I'll bless you. If you do what's wrong, I'll curse you. So they, they were in a separate relationship with God like no other nation was, based upon the blood of animals. We are in a separate relationship with God that is spiritual based upon the blood of Jesus Christ's Son. Right? Their holiness was not an eternal holiness. It wasn't a spiritual holiness. It was a flesh holiness, which is, of course, what Hebrews talks about. The cleansing of the flesh or the setting apart of the flesh. But Jesus' blood sets apart our spirit and perfects our spirit. Right? So, we have a different covenant. We have a spiritual covenant, a covenant of life. They had a covenant of death. The letter kills, the spirit gives life. We're in the new covenant. So yes, they could misread that because in the same way that when that, I, I say I'm referring to Israel because that's a quote, right? That's a quote going back. So if you go back with this, you shall be holy for I am holy. You go, oh yeah, he's, he's provoking Israel to walk in holiness. No, he's saying, you're in a state of holiness because I'm holy, but their holiness was a temporal, fleshy holiness that didn't promise eternal life. Yeah. It promised a temporal relationship with a God that if they did what's right, he would bless them, if they did what's wrong, he would curse them. 
And if they walked by faith in that, then they could be saved. But verse 17, he says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each, each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed or bought with perishable things like silver or gold or from the feudal, your feudal way of life, inherited from your fathers, but you were bought with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. That is to say, the blood of Jesus Christ. So you were paid for with blood. Why were you paid for with blood? Because if it's not his blood, it's whose blood? Your blood. And if you die for your sins, where do you go? Hell. If he dies for your sins, he can't be held down by death because he's God. So he gets raised up to newness of life. We get raised up to newness of life with him, which is what he's going to say, which is what he has said, has already said. We've, we've sharing this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, as we looked at in verse three, and what he's about to say here. He says, verse 24, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So your belief and hope are in God. Because, now listen, since you have listened to the truth, right? In hearing of the truth, you've purified your souls. Do you believe that your soul's purified? That's what it says. Right? Your soul has been saved. It's been purified. Can you unpurify it through your works? No. No. Because you didn't purify it. You can't take something that God himself made from his own divine nature. You can only walk it out, which is what he's about to say. Since you have, because you've heard the truth, you have purified your soul for a sincere or a true Love of the brethren. A true love of the brethren. We love him. He's put his love in us. He says, then fervently love one another from the heart. Then he says, for you have been what? What? Born again. Not of a seed. Now listen. It's very important. Not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God, right? So you were born again, not from a seed, which is perishable. What does that make you? It makes you imperishable. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 7, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. You say, how's that possible? We're, we all sin, don't we? Yeah, we do in the flesh, but my spirit is not the source. The tree that he's speaking of is the person who he's given new life to. Otherwise, Jesus is talking high in the sky, right? He's speaking in the same way that he said, unless your righteousness exceed that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean? 
Is anybody here as righteous as the scribes and Pharisees and all their little dinky donkey laws that they did as far as all? No, we don't do that. Is anybody as, as that's Matthew 5, 20, about Matthew 5, 48, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That we have obtained. How do we obtain perfection inside of us? By being born from above. By being born again. From an imperishable seed. Now, in 1 John 3, he uses the word sperm. And it's translated seed. Sperm, sperma. In this text, he uses the word for actual seed of plant. Plant seed. So you cover it from both angles. Your spirit was removed and replaced. Peter's saying, because of that, and he's placed his love in you, that's the only reason you can possibly love accurately according to the way God loves is because God himself put his love in you. First and foremost, you're going to love him. Secondly, you're going to have a love for the brethren. Now he says, figure out how to work it out. That's for you to figure out. Because no one is married to the people you're married to. Nobody has your kids. Nobody has your job the way you have it. Right? Nobody has your life. So that means your love and the way you work out your love is customized to your life. And you have to figure it out. You have to fight for it. Nobody's going to fight for you for it. You have to fight for it. You have to find the areas where you're not walking out that love and fight to love. And the fight is going to be against you. Against your own flesh. Seeking to supplant you. That's why it says walk it out. Knowing that your stay here on earth is short. It is. It's like a puff. Think of how many people have gone along before us. And they're dead. And will be dead. And there'll be others. It's a short stay. We're not here to build things and make things and pursue things. We're here to represent God on the earth and maybe he will allow us to have some nice things. Maybe that doesn't fit our life. Doesn't really matter. But I know this, in our lives, I've sought love no matter what. When it, when it comes to whatever state we've been in, and we've been in some lowly states, wouldn't you say, Bethy? Few, yeah, somewhat, somewhat kind of, sort of. We've been in some, some states of, of need and want, slightly. But the goal, my goal was always, and has been always, to facilitate love in my home. When you're lost and you don't know what to do with your life, and you don't look around you and perfect love toward those around you. That's what you do. Because you have it. You have it. Because God gave it to you as a gift. And that gift was only possible because you were born from above. You were born of God. You were born again. See, that's what saves you. Remember, it's very important for you to always understand this. In fact, let's, let's read it. Uh, I'll read it to you real quick. And then we're going to pop right back to Peter and look at a little bit more. In Romans 5, verse 10. Well, 6 through 10. It says, While we were helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, 
Though perhaps for a good man, someone might dare to die, even though that's a funny little statement. The reason why he says that is because righteous people tend to be pain in the hindsight. They're righteous, but they're not nice. Because righteous people are just righteous. They're not kind and loving and gentle generally. But good people, people like and love and generally want to be around them and would even die for one, like King Arthur, the old Knights of the Round Table kind of story. He goes, but God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he says this, much more than having been justified by his blood, shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him. What does he say there? He says, you have to break this down. Salvation is broken down into two, two moments right here. On the one hand, you're saved from God's what? What? Everybody say it. His wrath. You're saved from his anger, his indignation, him wanting to destroy you and smash you like a little greasy ant. Right? You're saved from that. Through what part of this act of Jesus? His death. So you break it down. Because Jesus died, God's not going to smash you like an ant. He wanted to, but he didn't because of his love. As much as he hated you, he also has the counter of love. He's not like a human. God has the ability. He's a, he's a very interesting person because he has a profound love for the very thing that he hates. So much so that he would kill his own son to redeem it. But he hates it so much, he's going to squash it like an ant. Right? So he's a very complex person. People often think of him too human-like. So he says, you're, you're safe from his absolute rage because of Jesus' death. Okay, that's nice. Now, that means that if Jesus only dies, you're only saved from his rage, but you're not saved unto his love. You're not saved unto his eternal presence. The death of Jesus doesn't get you into heaven. Look at the verse. Verse 10. For, while, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. That's what he just said. Much more, having been reconciled, since that has happened, since the death reconciled us, we shall be saved by his life. His life, his resurrection. The resurrection is what gets you into heaven. Because it's the resurrection, it's the premise for God birthing you new. It's the resurrection of Jesus, it's the premise of God making you his child, birthing you from above, creating you new, making you his children. It's the resurrection of Jesus that gets you into heaven. That's why when you read 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if the resurrection is not real, he didn't say if the death's not real, he said if the resurrection's not real, we're all stupid <laughs> for believing what we're believing. You say, but, but the death of Jesus, but the death of Jesus doesn't give us any promise of eternal life or eternal heaven without the life of Jesus. You're saved unto eternal life because he rose from the dead and then God is now given the right to raise you from the dead because Jesus was risen from the dead. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, you don't get raised from the dead. Okay, let's just say you're saved forever from his wrath, but now he can't kill you and he can't throw you into hell. Now you're just stuck on earth in a fallen place where people just are hateful for, for all eternity. You know he's stuck here in this existence forever and ever and ever and ever and ever? I don't. 
That's just another version of hell. Right? I want life. This is what he's talking about. Now you look at Peter and we'll wrap this up. Let's kind of read through this last section of chapter one. He says, um, for all flesh is like grass and all the glory of the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which we have preached to you, the word that endures forever. And your, your creation that God made you from heaven is made off the basis of the enduring, eternal, incorruptible word of God. Who's the word of God? John 1, Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And he says this. Now I want to wrap up with this nice little encouragement that he encourages us with. Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like what? Newborn babies. Long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to your own what? Salvation. You are saved. You just need to grow in respect to that salvation. You need to grow in respect to that salvation. You need to know who you are and grow in respect to that truth. Because if you look in the mirror, like those people of old, you're going to go, I don't understand how I can still be sinful. And so they start separating. I was talking about that earlier. We didn't finish it. Separating soul and spirit. So what they did was they said, well, okay, the soul is still fallen and the spirit is good. And so the spirit doesn't matter. So you have the Holy Spirit, your spirit, and your soul. And the soul is the corrupted part. And so your job in Christianity then, you know, is to, um, is to, is to get better through prayer, through giving, through deeds of uh, service, through uh, all these other things that they prescribe. So your soul goes from bad to better through these acts, and that's salvation for you. And when you die, you go straight to heaven. You've got to get a 20% salvation sort of a holy, a holy 20% gift certificate. And then you have to work your way up between about 50%. You never really get above 50%, you know, because you're going up and down the whole time. It's really laborious and difficult, you know, to explain. And so, <laughs> and, then you, uh, and then you die, and then you get the other 50% of, of holiness and goodness and righteousness at death. That's utter ludicrous. Are you telling me that I'm going to affect my spirit's essence by praying or reading my Bible? I'm going to somehow go from bad to better through an act of service, like folding chairs. Oh, each chair. I'm better now. That's, that's a percent. Fold another chair. Look at there. It's ludicrous. It's utterly stupid because nowhere in the scriptures is gross. It's nonsense. You're growing in respect to your salvation you already have obtained. You're maturing in it like a baby. You ever seen a baby have to grow arms? Grow legs? You ever seen a baby have to become more human? Right? No, it just grows. A baby's not like a tadpole, right? So it has to mature into babydom, you know, and then you can grow into humanity. No. You are a full, completed new creation in Jesus Christ spiritually. You have to grow in respect to that. That means you have to look into the scriptures, into the invisible world of the spirit, 
and you have to believe what is written about you and, and others, and you have to walk that out by belief. That's why it keeps talking about by belief, by belief, by belief. That's why so many times religion is so boring because it's not real. It's, it, there's a sense of this, this doesn't affect me really. Tell me what to do. Yeah, yeah, okay. You love your husband, love your wife, blah, 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 whatever. Give, serve, come, to, come on the weekends and read your Bible. All this nonsense. It's not life. When you leave, when you're home, do you feel alive to God? You are alive to God if you're His, whether you feel like it or not. You are alive. The question is, do you believe it? And do you walk that out? That's why he says, since you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, technically he says since. And he says, I'm just going to read through this in closing. And coming to him, he's telling us to come to him in this mindset. And you have to ask yourself, do I come to the Lord in my, in my heart and mind daily all the time with this mindset? Coming to him as a living stone, which the which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now we're talking about the spirit a lot because this is, that's what you are, your spiritual priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. What's the sacrifice that you're offering? Your, Romans 12, 1, body. Yeah, your body. Every second of every day, you have opportunity to present your body as a living and holy sacrifice. Though it is a body of death and a body of sin, you present it alive and set apart. That is your priesthood. And that, believe me, is no boring thing. It is quite the challenge. In fact, it's such a challenge it can be overwhelming and people can just abandon ship and go back to just letting the flesh operate in life without thinking, winging it. And winging it is never a good thing. He says this. He says, for, for this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone on the stumbling and a rock of offense, and Jesus did because they wanted to play the, with the monopoly game rather than use real money. For they stumbled because they were disobedient to the word and to this doom they were appointed. But he says this about you and I. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Is that the way you feel about yourself? Because it's very important. Like when you see yourself as a child of God in the mirror in the morning, you think, man, I am, I'm God's chosen race. I am a royal prince of heaven because I was birthed from there. I'm a prince of heaven, a princess of of heaven. I'm a part of a holy nation, a real one, a spiritual one, an actual one, not one that can become unholy through behavior. 
A real one because God made us that way, created us that way. Right? A people for God's own possession. That's ultimately what this is all about, God making a family. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the truth. So that you can wake up, believe the truth about yourself, and then go proclaim that. Somebody says, well, you're, you sure seem happy today. It's because I'm a new creation. God made me new. I'm, a holy, I'm part of a holy nation. I'm a royal prince of heaven. You ever say that to anybody? Seems awkward, wouldn't it? Yeah, I like Tony's answer. No. I think he was being facetious. But uh, somewhat. But it doesn't to me now. No, it shouldn't is what my point was going to be. It shouldn't. In other words, that's the lead into the gospel. Somebody say, oh, that's crazy talk. No, no, that's the truth. Like one day you're going to know this about you in full measure when you sit on the throne with God, judging the nations and judging the angels. And then you will know you were always a royal priest and a royal child of God and a holy nation. After salvation, you will know that. You'll go, wow, I wish I would have represented this. It's gonna be so grand when you see who you are now. When you die and you see yourself, when you see who you really, really are, it's gonna be so grand you're going to be bummed if you don't represent it here. I can guarantee you that. You're going to sit in heaven and be bummed you didn't speak more about how ridiculously grand your salvation is. We are royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for God's own, own possession to proclaim him. It says, for one, it says, verse 10, for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so he closes with this last thing. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly desires that wage war against the what? What's the, what's the thing that's gonna draw you into sin? The fleshly desire of the what? The flesh, right? Desire of the flesh. Waging war against what? That's Romans 7 in a nutshell. The outside fighting against the inside. And God says, greater is he who's in you than he is in the world. You have the power to grow and to present yourself as the royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You have that power. It's yours. That's why it says, keep your behavior. Again, your behavior. Excellent among the Gentiles. So in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of his coming, his visitation. If you truly walk righteous, you will be slandered by the world as being unloving, unkind. Because if you don't agree, okay, say you're in, that, you're in the hairstyle situation, what do people want to do? They want to tell you their woes and they want you to, to agree with them. What happens when you can't agree? Shut down. They shut down or they get angry. Mm -hmm. Which is they get angry and then they shut down. So you're being persecuted and you, didn't even, you don't even realize it, right? So, and if you stay silent, they assume you agree. Right? And that's the way it always works. 
they just silences uh, is like a, they automatically assume that you're on their side until they finally push it to the point where you can't actually be in agreement with them. And then now they're silent. Or they'll try to justify and weasel their way. Well, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then it kind of like fades down into like, oh, so uh, did you see that the uh, things happening? Or the subject change, sub subject changes or just quietness, right? In other words, and then they go home and say, I can't believe my hairstylist said this or that. No, there's a slander you because of your good behavior, of your holiness and your righteousness. And then, but if they watch your kindness consistently, they'll still say, she's still a really godly person, right? I don't like that she didn't rejoice in my unrighteousness. How dare her not rejoice in my unrighteousness? <laughs> this is what your, your first line of, 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 uh, of dealing with the world is chatting, chitter-chatting, especially here in the South. You can be a light real easy, just let somebody talk, and eventually they're going to say something you, you, can't, you can't agree with. And then you have to represent truth, and that's going to cause a problem. And then you can explain to them who you are and why you make this thing, that you stand in the place you stand. The God... The, the most high God, the creator of the heavens and the earth and blah, 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 and so forth and so on, all the truth, whatever might apply to the situation. But that's the context, right? Because what happens if you don't keep your, your behavior excellent? What if they say something nasty to you and then you say something nasty back? <laughs> you know, now you're a meanie, meanie-weenie, you know? So if it's, as opposed to like your behavior reflecting you being a new creation, and so that's, anyway, a practical application. Very simple. We could take that and I could talk days and days and days about the practical intimacies of how that would work out in family, with friends, at work, and so forth and so on. We'll close up with these two. Yeah. You, just, you always said that when, some, when you're in an argument and somebody can't, the other person can't win, they'll always attack, attack your integrity. Your that's right. When you... Are speaking truth. And it's not really an argument. I mean argument from the technical sense of a, an apologetic. When you're speaking truth and somebody is trying to get their way and it's a sinful way in some way or another, if they can't get their way, they will eventually, when they feel like, oh, like they can't win, they can only attack your integrity. They'll either quietly leave or they'll begin to attack you slowly. Undermine you. Well, you, you could have said it nicer. Like they'll start attacking you in order to get off of the subject and make it about you rather than about the topic. You got to avoid that. Just ignore all that. Anyway. But that, um, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I have a question. Can we back up to verse 23? Um, to me, that is a case for eternal security. Since we're born of an imperishable seed, that right. new life is imperishable, then we can't lose our salvation. Well, of course you can't, because you didn't do anything to gain it. Right. You know? And, uh, yeah, that's what we were talking about. It's, it's impossible. It's an imperishable seed. Thus, it cannot perish. 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 <laughs> By definition. <laughs> By definition. Imperishable. It cannot perish. In other words, here's the equation. The only way that you could perish is if God and his word, Jesus Christ, sins first. Right? That's the equation. Because it's the word of God, the imperishable word of God, which is Jesus Christ, 
that our imperishability is based upon. So the only way for the thing connected to the source to perish would be for the source to perish. He's the vine with the branches. So the only way for us to perish or to go into sin would be for him to fall into sin first. So then you have to say, do you believe that Jesus and God can fall into sin? No, I don't believe that. Therefore, I'm connected to them. Out of them, there's no way I could perish or fall into sin after being made new. It's a ridiculous notion. Yeah, so your observation's dead on right. So, all right, let me uh, pray and we'll enjoy some fellowship. Father, thank you for this time. I pray your blessings on it. I pray that by reading through this, just examining it and staring at it and rejoicing in it, that our hearts, after so many weeks, are being solidified in your truth, seeing each passage unfold and explain the very same thing, that the blood of Jesus pays for the sins because of your love for us, passing over them. He paid for your love and he pays for our sin. And also, his life gives us new life. The basis of our new life is in his life. Lord, let that truth of salvation permeate within us, begin to build a foundation within us by which to look in the mirror and believe it strongly, powerfully. I pray you increase our faith, increase our love and our, and our convictions in your truth so as to walk it all out in such a way that is pleasing to you. It always sets in my heart, Father, in the hearing of the Jesus' words when he said, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? After hearing that over 30 years ago, I thought to myself, I hope that's not the case with me, with my family, those I minister to, and I hope it is not the case. I hope that when you come, if you come in these days, that you will find a group of people who believe you, who walk it out and rejoice in it so as to be pleasing to you and be rewarded by you. So we pray in Jesus' name.